locked in the prisons of our daily limitations, we often have cause to wonder what godly good can come from us. How can we, in our sometimes shriveled state, hope to rise up to live lives of devotion? But Paul reminds believers, despite any adverse circumstance, our marching orders remain intact. Sing, shout, proclaim, praise. The where of it hardly matters because the Lord is always Emmanuel, the word made alive, as John revealed, forever present. His weapons and ours in hand, grace, truth, and all the love we'll ever need. Jeremiah tells us a life of radiance awaits, a time of joy on the heels of mourning. Strength is ours for the asking, power from the God of comfort and peace who paints our tomorrows with light. There is no place I'd rather be, no people I'd rather be with than you guys on this Epiphany Sunday and the first Sunday of 2016. I'd like to um, draw your attention to scripture for this morning. Start with Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Give you a minute to find it. <laughs> Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Next, we'll look at Jeremiah 31, verses 7 to 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. And finally, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, 
nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God's granting his good news to us and through us and in us. Uh, some of us are terrible about that because we'll pick up the book off the shelf and we'll turn to the last page and we'll see who done it. Uh, we'll figure it out. Uh, others need to read, you know, the whole mystery through and refuse to uh, accept spoiler uh, alerts. Um, and then there are those of us like me who kind of start in the middle and kind of page back and forth and figure it out. But we live in a time of mystery. What we want, though, is certainty. We, we want answers. We, we think that Christianity is about rational truth expounded rationally and we can tick the boxes of orthodoxy and have it all figured out neatly tied up in a bow like a present on Christmas morning when in reality our lives and our faith look like the aftermath of a Christmas present opening with tatters scattered across the room and our kids and our grandkids playing not with the toys we got them but with the boxes they came in. It was Richard Rohr who says, I believe in mystery and multiplicity. To religious believers this may sound almost pagan but I don't think so. We live in a world of mystery. We, we live in a world where Whatever formula you've got figured out for how God works, I guarantee you that formula will break down at some point. Whatever, however you've shoved God into a box so that you've got him neat and ordered and figured out, I guarantee you, you have engaged in a great adventure and missing the point. Our faith is a mystery. That's why they call it faith. The, the certainties that we seek simply aren't there this side of heaven. The certainties, the, the answers that demand a verdict, the evidence that demands a verdict, just doesn't always pan out the way we think it's going to. And so we are challenged by these scriptures this morning 
to think in fresh ways about the mysterious work of God in our lives and how we live that mystery out. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is the first place of mystery. Paul talks in a giant run-on sentence. Verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 is a single sentence in the Greek. Uh, Paul did not win any awards for Greek grammar. Um, it just runs on and on and on. And, and if you compare translations throughout history uh, in the English, you will see punctuation all over the map as people try to figure out what really is Paul saying to us. Well, I think he's talking about praise. He is, he is grateful for a, a faith of mystery. He is grateful for the blessing of mystery and the mystery of blessing. In verses 3 through the first half of verse 8, he talks about, he offers his praise for the blessing of God, that God's efforts are, are the, the blessing with every blessing in Christ. God, God is at work, Paul says, in and through and because of Jesus. Paul is not trying to create a gospel that's somehow separate from Jesus. He's trying to interpret Jesus. He's taking the Jesus story that he has heard and experienced. And he now teaches these new Christian believers that every blessing is because of Christ. Not because we are deserving, not because we are worthy. That's not the point. The point is God is at work in the world through Christ. And so we are blessed by God's choice, Paul says, that, that God has chosen us, that he's, he's reached out to us. He's, he's reached across the divide between God and humanity. And he's extended his hand in friendship and love. And more than that, he's adopted us, he's named us, he's, he's made us a community, he has welcomed us into a family. The Christian walk, Paul says, is not an individual, isolated bubble of religiosity. It is instead a dynamic experience among people in the journey together. And we are blessed Thirdly, by God's redemption. He has forgiven us. Now we may think, well, I mean, after all, we're postmodern, so really, seriously, what do we really need to be forgiven for? I mean, we've we're okay people. I mean, we we don't bounce checks, we don't get overextended on our credit, we don't speed down the freeway, we don't, you know. All of, our, all of our documentation is in order. You know, we're all here in this country legally. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we do everything right. So what really do we need to be forgiven for? We, what have we done wrong? Well, Paul says, look, we, we are all estranged from God. 
We all live in isolation. And God, through Christ, has chosen us, adopted us, and forgiven us, welcomed us, redeemed us. And so Paul offers this great praise of blessing, but he goes on and says the reason that God has blessed us, the way he has blessed us, is he's revealed Christ. God's purpose, God's purpose isn't to get us all, you know, wearing our wings and playing our harps and, you know, doing whatever heavenly things we think angels after we die do. God's purpose is the unity, the coming together of all things under Christ. The unity that Paul speaks of is not how do we all agree with each other, how do we all acknowledge the same Lord? How do we all acknowledge the same King? How do we all give the same allegiance to one greater than us? That has very little to do with whether we agree about the public policy issue du jour. God's purpose is that we are united not in our agreements but united in our acknowledgement that Christ and Christ alone is Lord. And so we are united through God's plan, through his will, through his stated purpose. God's desire isn't that we be disunited, but that we be one people. That we are united through the gospel, through, through truth claims, and that we are united through the Holy Spirit, through a guarantee that God is continuing to be at work. Paul's experience of the mystery of the gospel and its blessing is to remind us that we can come from different places. Paul was, Paul was Jewish but grew up in the Jewish diaspora in Asia Minor. He wasn't a Palestinian Jew. He wasn't, he, he had to earn his way into that world. We come from different places. We have different perspectives. We have different points of view. And what it means to be the church is not that we somehow homogenize that, but that we live seriously into our differences and accept the notion that Christ and Christ alone is above and beyond all of it. That he calls us to follow him first. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking hundreds of years before Paul, reflected on the same concept, the mystery of promise, in reflecting on coming home from the exile. Now, Jeremiah doesn't write <coughs> Jeremiah doesn't write during the return from the exile. He's at the front end of the exile. He's anticipating a return that will someday come. He's being hopeful. Some would say he's being stupid. That he's he's being far more than hopeful. 
that he's being impossibly naive. The nation of Judah has been wiped off the map. The people have been sent into exile. There, there is no nation of Judah. It's a Babylonian imperial province governed, governed from Babylon. And other people are taking over that land and living there. There will be no return. Jewish people will be swept into the dustbin of history. That was the imperial plan. But Jeremiah, Sourpuss Jeremiah, the guy who's for years and years and years has been promising that there will be an exile. In fact, he's been such an irritant to the leaders in Judea that they threw him into a cistern one day. Said, we've had enough of you. Push him into the hole. Hope he stays there. This guy, the sourpuss, he's the one that says, no, there's going to be a return. God is going to continue to work his purposes out. And you will sing as you come home. And it will be a return for everybody. Those that can barely walk because they're carrying children. And those who, who, have, uh, who, who, are, who have imperfections. They will be welcome too. Everyone will come home. But it will also be a poignant return. There will be tears shed. It won't just be happy and joy. It will be pain and sorrow. But the promise of a return from exile is laid out. And I can imagine being one of the Jews hearing this in Jeremiah's letter to, the, to those in exile and thinking, what? It's never going to happen. That's just, that's crazy talk. But Jeremiah goes on in verses 10 to 14 of chapter 31 to proclaim why that's going to happen. Essentially, Jeremiah says, it's not because you're so deserving, Israel. It's not because God favors you so much. It's because God wants to proclaim to the nations that he will not let his people go. That no matter how rambunctious, no matter how divisive, no matter how we, we damage our relationship with God, he will not let us go. He hangs in there. And so the declaration is to the nations, look and see what I've done with, with Israel, with Judah, who deserved exile more than anybody could imagine. I'm going to bring them home. And that's going to create an upside-down kind of community. Not a place where might makes right, but a place where transformation can happen. And in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, that transformation in the return began to be worked on. John's gospel is a third conversation about mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of God appearing in the flesh. It's not enough that God's at work mysterious ways guaranteed by the Holy Spirit that 
that God was at work bringing Israel back, there's also this, at the fulcrum of history, at the center point of our lives, there is this story of the word who became flesh and dwelled among us in the neighborhood. The New Testament scholar Willard Swartley, who identifies these first 18 verses of John as a, as a chiastic poem. It's a, it's a poem that, that has parallel uh, imagery throughout it. And what you look for in a chiastic is what's at the center of that. And at the center of that, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, is this notion that God is gifting salvation to the world. To all who would receive the word, God grants salvation. This is a radical word coming from a Jewish person to a Jewish community because the Gentiles were outside the covenant of God. That's, that was the Jewish worldview. You were either God's chosen people or you weren't. And now here is someone saying, no, the, the critical mission of God was to bring all people into salvation, to bring all people into wholeness and healing. So John's mystery of the invocation is that it's, of the incarnation is that it's for everybody. That no one lies outside the grace of God. We want to think people lie outside the grace of God. We all have our, we all have our enemies list. Those folks that don't deserve God's grace because they don't deserve my forgiveness. Now, okay. Yeah, maybe you don't have a list like that, but I do. None of you are on it, don't worry. But, but there are people who are on that list, I confess. The incarnation is it's a powerful reminder that the world doesn't work that way. God's work, God's mission is to redeem everyone, everywhere. The days are coming and may already be here when we can live in utter devotion to God's mission through Christ. The mission of God, the Missio Dei, is to redeem the world, to, to, repair, <coughs> to repair the breach that began in the Garden of Eden and has continued generation upon generation. The days are coming and they may already be here when we can actually walk with God in such a way that our lives are committed to his mission of repairing the world. God's mission is to repair the world that's been broken. Our mission is to welcome what God is up to. And so how do we live out the mystery? How do we live into the mystery? And I think we do that in three ways. We we live with the blessing of the centrality of Christ. We live as if all of Jesus matters to everyone, everywhere, about everything. 
Think about that for a minute. Pick your pet issue. What's Jesus' view on that issue? That's all that's important. Your view or your, or your particular political persuasions group's view may be of secondary importance, but only of secondary importance. We are called to live with Christ at the center, to live as if all of Jesus, his entire story, matters to everyone, everywhere, about everything. That Jesus is at the center and is total in his scope. That there's a totality about the gospel along with the centrality of the gospel that makes a difference in our lives. Secondly, the promise of the contrast community. The exiles coming back from Babylon that read and were reminded of Jeremiah's letter. They didn't just need to change their address. They needed to be released from that which bound them, from fear, from guilt, from shame. And that's really the purpose of community, to free us, to give us freedom from the fear and guilt and shame that, that, that forces us into isolation. And to begin to live as people who have been released. Prophet Isaiah says that the good news comes to release the captive. And while he was likely reflecting on people held in jails... We are all captives to things that bind us in fear or that cause us shame or that we feel guilty about. Living in the mystery of God's mission means we're part of a mysterious community that somehow frees us of that, that welcomes us with our imperfections and our irritations and our unwillingness to conform. That's the power of community. Not that we agree with each other, but that we disagree with each other and continue to love one another, to be committed to one another, to walk with one another as a contrast to the world that demands conformity and expects compliance. And then thirdly, living into the mystery of God's mission is the incarnation of salvation into the world, that we live with God's mission of reconciliation at the forefront of our lives, that, it, <coughs> that at the cutting edge of all that we are and all that we do is the notion that God wants to heal the world and that he's chosen us as the vehicle for that. Now, you got to admit, that shows that God has a sense of humor, that he's chosen us to be at the forefront of his mission of reconciling the world, that it's our job 
to welcome the world he's redeeming, that we, that we engage in the work of reconciliation. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I, I find that really implausible in my life some days. Most days, I, I, I would rather build the walls than reach across. I would rather take that band of people who agree with me 99% of the time and figure out how to go. But the incarnation is God's word to us that says it isn't about agreeing with each other. It's about living in my presence together. It's about living with God's mission of reconciliation, the forefront of our lives. We enter a new year. It's 2016, and likely you've made all kinds of New Year's resolutions, some of which might include diets. But I want to ask you this morning, what do you have appetite for in this new year? What is your appetite as 2016 dawns and emerges in our midst? Are we hungry to follow Jesus daily in life? To live as if everything he said and did matters? Or are we content with a diet version of Jesus? Uh, we, we only want the 100 calorie rice cake version of Jesus. Now, okay, rice cakes might be a good thing for me to have a little bit more in 2016, but, but when it comes to Jesus, I want the full calorie version. Are we hungry to follow Jesus daily in life? Are we hungry to shed guilt, shame, and fear by means of community? Or are we content with our painful isolation? Are we content to live as individuals, estranged from each other, and ultimately then from God? Or do we desperately seek to shed the guilt and shame and fear that is, in essence, a fat suit on our soul that drags us down and holds us back. Third, are we hungry to participate in God's mission of reconciling the world? Or are we okay with a little bit of violence? A little bit of violence every now and then. Never hurt anything. Really? Except maybe the people the violence was perpetrated against. Are we hungry to participate in God's mission of reconciliation? The days are coming, and they may already be here. When God makes good on his promise to transform the world, even though it may not be pretty, it is happening. When God raises up messengers of truth and grace, so maybe we should consider, reconsider how we do things.
when what we think we believe about Jesus might matter less than how we practice the way of Jesus. When institutional unilateral power will be defeated and relational power, power of organizing together will make a way for shalom. When the current generation of leaders will need to give way to a new voice of women and men with prophetic call. And when we can live in utter devotion to God's mission through Christ. This is the call of Advent. This is, this is the journey we've been on these six weeks. The star in the east has been beckoning us to a new day. A day that's coming and may already be here when God in his shifty, mysterious way messes up our preconceived notions about how he ought to work and begins to mess with us and challenge us and invite us and reconcile us and empower us. It was David Bosch, the South African missiologist, who said in his book, Transforming Mission, that God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. Brothers and sisters, we don't exist as a church to do mission. We don't exist as a church to carry out programs. Mission and program are good things, but really, mission belongs to God. God is at work trying to reconcile the world to himself. And what he has done is he's given every one of us in this room the vocation of being his instrument of reconciliation. The challenge you and I have is to figure out how that vocation plays out in our lives, how in the everyday worlds that we inhabit, as we teach students, as we, as we manage projects, as we build buildings, as we are students in classrooms, as we work with the bereaved and those in pain. How is God using you, using me, using us to reconcile the world to himself?